Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Polygon Alpha podcast, where the Polygon community gathers insights from today's leaders in decentralized finance, crypto, and Web3. I'm your host, Justin Havens, aka Crypto Texan. Let's get started. On today's episode of Polygon Alpha, we are joined by Jack Chong and Tej Ragsdale, who authored The Real World Asset Primer. Uh, it's an incredible piece of literature touching on all of the aspects of bringing real world assets onto the blockchain and what the future looks like. So Jack, Tej, thanks for being here with us today. How's everything going? Good, sir. Thank you for having us on. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So let's just get started on y'all's background. Uh, Jack, we'll start with you. You know, what's your background? And then Tej, we'll, we'll go to you as well. Yeah, sure. So I am more like a DeFi guy, but funny enough, I actually just become crypto code in the beginning of the year. Uh, I started off doing a Solidity coding bootcamp. Um, and before that, I had a biotech startup. Uh, I've worked in AI SaaS, uh, thought, worked in the enterprise SaaS VC. And so when I first jumped into DeFi, I saw a lot of parallels with enterprise SaaS when it comes to adoption dynamics when it comes to how to clear out and classify different solutions in terms of pricing model. And I think that kind of uh, hinted at some of the motivations and some of the lenses that I looked at real world assets. Um, and DeFi is really exciting, you know, particularly um, because I initially started to look at stable coins, a lot of parallels between uh, monetary economics and mechanism design. But there's a problem, which is crypto has so far remained quite reflexive. And so I did a bunch of stablecoin research. I actually wrote the first code base analysis and economic analysis of Frex, and that went viral and that was my debut. And um, I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, the more protocols I saw, the more I'm like, wow, but where's the fundamental value from this? Why, how can we reduce volatility of this asset? Uh, and I thought real world asset is inevitable. That's what drew me to it. And Teach, what about your background? Yeah, my background. Um, so I spent about three years uh, on Wall Street trading commercial mortgage-backed securities, basically pools of real estate loans, <clears throat> primarily commercial. Um, that was very interesting. Always enjoyed the intellectual exercise of um, finding a position undervalued before someone else. Um, but like many of us who have sought refuge in crypto. I was sort of tired of being told what to do, and I felt the shop that I was working for was uh, was a bit dogmatic. Um, so I gave my two weeks at the beginning of COVID, uh, moved to Turkey for a bit, and then um, reintegrated in the workforce in the only way I knew how, which was at the intersection of crypto and the real world. Um, and so I've been um, leading the real world asset effort um, at MakerDAO for the past year or so. Wow. Very, very interesting. And so the title of this document or this paper, this primer, if you will, is called An Unreal Primer on Real World Assets by UTs, Jack, and then you also have a third author, McCoond. Um, can, can one of you all just give a little bit of background on, on McCoond uh, since he's unable to be here? Sure, I can take it. Uh, Mook is our third contributor. Um, <clears throat> early on when uh, we decided to sit down and write this thing. Um, he, you know, shot across the bow um, and said he wanted to contribute. And we were, of course, thrilled uh, to have someone, 
A, crypto native, um, and B, interested in sort of contributing to what we hoped was a, was a foundational piece. Uh, Mook, I believe, is a junior um, at Harvard. Um, he recently interned with Box Group as well as uh, Antimetal. Knows a ton about crypto, um, and he actually announced today that he'd be taking a, a new gig, but I'll let him announce that to the world. So we were thrilled to have him on. Yeah, that's amazing. So I, I guess we can just kind of go ahead and just start digging into this primer on real world assets. And one of the first things that y'all talk about in this primer is the dualism of real world assets. And you touch on this topic topic of birth and rebirth of real world assets or RWAs. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Sure, I can take it. Um, maybe we'll let Jack snag the next one. Um, yeah, so look, we sat down um, and we sought to um, contextualize the universe of real world assets um, for the purposes of onboarding them onto crypto rails. <clears throat> and so we came up with two broad categorizations, which together should um, explain the entire universe of, of onboardable assets. So the first category is what we refer to as rebirth assets. Now, these are assets that all of us um, on this call, as well as presumably listeners, will have heard of. These are your traditional asset types like equities, prime mortgages, commercial and, and, uh, and residential, public corporate loans, sovereign debt. These assets are very liquid. They're established. They've been around, floating around in capital markets for a very long time. And so one part of this journey for us is to re-ledger those assets and hopefully gain some efficiencies in the process. Now, the problem is that those assets benefit from what we've called excellent execution. The capital markets for those sorts of assets are already very tight. They're good. They work. People are comfortable with them. And so while we must re-ledger those assets, we're sort of splitting hairs, right? Those, um, those assets behave fairly efficiently. But what about the remainder of the universe of assets that can be pulled onto crypto rails? So the, the other sort of side of this is uh, birth assets. And these are really assets that uh, the underlying distributed ledger technology unlocks the very existence of, right? And so... <clears throat> The ledger itself is sort of the zero to one re uh, required to give birth to these asset types. These are asset types we expect to become bigger and bigger over the next five to 10 years. And so this is your stuff like your Dow to Dow bonds, um, your agricultural commodity perpetual futures, um, as well as your decentralized insurance. So to just summarize there, rebirth, existing established assets being reledgered. Uh, birth, new asset classes unlocked by the underlying technology. To add on that, right? So when we think about real world assets, when you think about assets, there's like two aspects of what makes an asset an asset. There is the representation of an asset, right? Which determines, so in economics, there is a term called arrow, um, arrow security, which is uh, defined as, you know, a security was a security was an asset. Well, it determines the payout uh, given certain state of affairs. For example, what is a debt? Well, a debt, let's say, I borrow you a hundred bucks from you, Justin. Well, the state of affairs is in the next six months, I'm going to return you back a hundred bucks at, you know, plus some interest rate. So that's the representation of it. But there's also the ownership of it, right? Which is who owns what at what time and what portion. And this ownership and representation 
both sides have to sit on a ledger. So what TJ said about when it comes to birth and rebirth, that hinders the underlying ledger. Rebirth, right, existing MBS mortgage-backed securities, they, at the moment, they sit at either a 100-page legal documents, sit at some banks' um, databases, uh, or some Web2 fintech databases. Um, and for birth assets, that's really interesting. You know, they, the likes of hash power-backed loans for crypto miners, they are fairly crypto-native. Because these crypto miners, as soon as they use electricity to mine cryptocurrency, that hash power is sold. And in this process, this flow of funds, this transfer of value is happening digital, a digital native uh, way, right? Um, and then the next question becomes, right, we have representation, we have ownership, then how do we actually represent them on a blockchain or even should we put some of that on the blockchain? Yeah, and I guess that kind of leads into, you know, w- what are some of the hurdles? And I think in the paper, you also address the issue of standards or the lack of standards, I guess. Uh, why do you feel like that's important? And I guess in kind of addressing the problem there. Yeah, so there's really two ways to tackle this observation we have. The first one is, is there a problem for you know, when it comes to standard for real-world assets? And number two, why is this problem important? So I'm going to tackle the important question first. Uh, I studied, I had a philosophy and academic training. So very often in like academic philosophy, when you go into a topic, you start with why is it important? And then you go into the actual substance of it. Why is the standard important? If we look at financial innovations history, standards reduces transaction cost. Uh, you know, the rise of English language is a literal lingua franca used around the world that facilitated global trade. JPEG, PDF, MP3, these are internet native standards and it makes transfer of content or even value so easy on the internet. And similarly, in the financial world, there is securitization standards Right, which was probably invented um, 60s, 70s onwards, right? Uh, surely, definitely before 80s, because 80s, that's the invention of uh, junk bond with uh, Milken. And securita- what securitization did was basically it really transformed how credit or loans is done, right? So investors, so basically the underlying loans, so TJ used to work, uh, used to trade mortgage-backed securities and Behind these mortgage-backed securities are packaged and bundled loans to homeowners, right? They borrow, they, they take a loan to borrow a house, uh, to borrow money to buy a house. And these are packaged up to diversify and to basically scale up the, uh, the underlying risk and the underlying collateral, so to speak. And securitization was, uh, it was cool because it took these illiquid assets Right. If I take out a mortgage to buy a apartment in New York, that's just me myself. And it's fairly, it's not scalable to get financing one by one. Right. But what if there's a way that a hundred of these loans are packaged together and they follow the same way when it comes to legal standard, when it comes to financial standard, when it comes to the, the way risk is understood and the data input? Right. So you can package them up 
and larger institutional investors, the pension funds, the mutual funds, they can invest in it and they can have exposure to this asset class. And that consolidated a lot of how value flows and how finances is done in the modern world. The problem is that, um, you know, in securitization, there is a standard called the uh, CUSIPS, right? It's like a literal digit that defines, hey, this is a mortgage-backed security in the US, in this state, with this type of property. When it comes to other assets, it's actually not not that clear, you know, when it comes to emerging market consumer credit, that isn't a widely adopted interoperable standard. When it comes to renewable debt, which is what I'm building in this asset class, again, there's no uh, interoperable standard. So in Trafi, there's a problem with standard. And similarly, in crypto, you know, uh, in the in the real world asset adoption right now, they, or there's also a problem with standards. Um, and without standards, then when it comes to tokenizing real world assets, there's no clue for protocols, for investors, and for asset owners or borrowers to have a consensus. How do we define the state of affairs? How do we define the payoff? Uh, and so that is the problem that we think real world asset faces. And obviously, there are more specific examples that we'll cover later in this podcast as well. Yeah, Teach, do you have anything else uh, to add on that? Yeah, I mean, I think just a <clears throat> serviceable analogy for um, anyone listening <clears throat> would be sort of what happened in the in the early days of, of the internet, right? So um, <clears throat> at the beginning, um, the giants, IBM and Xerox, they both vied to have their proprietary standards um, for transmission and internet protocols be sort of the market standard, right? They had an interest in ensuring that everyone interacting on internet rails had to pay them rent. But what ended up happening um, was that the internet standard, TCPIP, was not commercial, right? It was a thin standard. It was sort of a public good that allowed for all the activity built on top of the internet to really explode right? and, and be unlocked. Now, sort of as, as Jack alluded to, we're missing this in um, on-chain RWA land, right? And one of the key sort of shortcomings in all the protocols um, that are seeking to drive liquidity to these assets is they're having trouble figuring out this issue of secondary market liquidity. If you, Justin, are a huge hedge fund and you go to one of these protocols and you're like, look, I like your assets, like the protocol, I'm comfortable with the smart contract risk, I'm going to put $50 million in. But you, protocol, have to guarantee me, Justin, that if I want to get out of this position, you can honor it. There'll be someone on the other side of that trade. And for the most part, <clears throat> the protocols can't really guarantee that secondary market liquidity today. Right? It doesn't exist. It's the Achilles heel of the whole industry. And what we think is what's going to end up happening is these common standards across the various protocols for things like permissioning, for things like legal, for things like liquidity, right? And that allows for the protocols to speak to one another and be one another's secondary market liquidity, which really unlocks growth for the entire industry. So our problem statement is really lack of a real-world asset standard to the extent that we can agree on that standard, a set of policies and procedures that everyone follows. Uh, we think growth will be explosive from there. 
So when you say uh, standard, you know, uh, when I think of standards in the blockchain space, I think of ERC-20, ERC-721, 1155, and like even, I guess, more recently, 4626. So are you thinking that there should be an ERC token standard specifically for real world assets? Is that what you're saying? So that's a great question. And uh, we actually cover that in the third section of the primer solution. So we figured this is we have a mapping of the real world assets stack, right? The diagram. And maybe we can pull it up as well. But um, on the left, there is the representation and ownership. Um, and that's more at the standard level that we're talking about. And then there's the infrastructuralist and asset specialist that we'll cover throughout this podcast. Going back to the uh, standards for representation and ownership of assets. So because I personally build in the space uh, and our mission, so I'm building Freak.echo and our mission is to help renewable developers assess financing. And when in doing so, I face this problem, which is we have some real world asset. We know that we want to tokenize a loan, tokenize a debt. And I need to pick a way to represent it on chain, right? To write some code and to figure out to what extent can I automate some financial workflow around it. And so I looked at a bunch of token standards um, that I listed in the primer as well. And so there's ERC20, there is NFTs, there is ERC36. 43 and the different standards, more in the security token standard. So I think realistically, we're not in a position to push for any standards and it's fairly difficult to do so because, um, you know, I come from a, so sort of, I was in a position to pick a standard. So I understand the criteria when it comes to picking the standard. It's ultimately fulfilling three needs. The technical need, which is how easy, how composable, how manageable the code is. The legal need, which is, does it, for example, does it limit transferability? Does it fulfill certain US or non-US regulation of the underlying asset? And then there's the business need, which is, does it make sense on a financial workflow perspective when it comes to the flow of funds on chain? or when it comes to the uh, even the whole underwriting process itself. So in short, basically, I think ERC-20, something like ERC-20 can be a standard for real-world asset, but there will be a lot of attempts to sort of customize and use other standards. But obviously, the trade-off is um, you sacrifice composability on top of it. But things like 4626 is really interesting. Uh, because it it's the best of both worlds. You, know, you have a vote, and then you can issue tokens uh, that represent a share of this vote. Um, so I personally am following quite closely to uh, the adoption of 4626 real-world assets. That's really, really interesting. And yeah, I'm also following very closely the adoption of ERC-4626. I think it's a, it's, it's a very interesting standard, and we just need more and more protocols to adopt it in order to gain that composability that you were talking about. Um, and also, you know, you touched on section three and in section three of this primary, you talk about what you call the protocol wars and similar to what Teach was saying earlier, you know, when you're looking at web one, you have like IBM and Xerox were fighting over their standards, but ultimately TCP IP one, uh, and now we're kind of looking at web three and, 
I want to know, like, what do you mean in the sense of protocol wars? And how do you exactly expect these wars to be fought? Yeah, so I think we think about the protocol wars as potentially being fought at sort of two different plans. Um, One is sort of at the infrastructure layer, um, which if folks are looking at the primer is sort of our inner circle, uh, the yellow circle of um, the builders of the rails upon which assets run. So these are things like, um, you know, your Oracle networks. These are things like your stable coins, whether it's Maker or Circle or anyone else, um, as well as sort of your tokenization platforms like Centrifuge and Ondo. And so even at this level, um, you're seeing um, protocols like Centrifuge and protocols like Ondo look to really tokenize assets, which means um, ingest certain assets into their protocol and imbue a token with some combination of representation of that asset and ownership of that asset. The other sort of plane upon which we see the protocol wars playing out, um, arguably more viciously, um, is on the asset specialist side. So these are really the protocols that are seeking to build out marketplaces for the um, connection of assets and DeFi liquidity. So this is sort of your Centrifuge, your Goldfinch, um, as well as your Maple, Clearpool, TruFi, Ondo, et cetera. Right? These guys want to build a two-sided marketplace where an originator who sits in the real world, who um, has some deal flow, does some underwriting, does some servicing, injects his or her assets into DeFi, and then there's someone on the other side to fund those assets, right? And they create that network effect. Well, all these protocols want to create that network effect, right? And by virtue of wanting to be a first mover and really own that liquidity, as really any software company that is seeking to build a network will want to do, we see an opportunity for there to be more collaboration around a standard than there is now. Competition is simultaneously very expected, and it sort of acts as a hamstring to the growth of the whole industry here. Just to add on that, so I personally find the middleware protocol war very interesting. Particularly, it's more the regulatory tech layer. So in short, basically, we classify uh, regulatory technology, which is, you know, it, it, it enables permissioning of participation in this real-world asset liquidity network. We'll classify that under the infrastructure list because if you think about it, it's like a horizontal software, horizontal layer. And from a protocol perspective, again, I'm putting my hat as a, as a builder now. I face the permanent question, which is when it comes to real-world assets, let's face it, most assets are securities. It's fairly difficult to to avoid falling under that uh, classification. And when it comes to securities regulation, uh, in the US and non-US, there are certain parameters. There are certain permissioning that is required. The most simple permissioning standard is a simple KYC AML, or to be able to tell that who your counterparty or who the, where the wallet address is from, and let's say you block it out US investors, right? And at the moment, the UX is pretty bad where, you know, uh, if you go through KYC with, uh, Goldfinch, for example, to invest in emerging market credit, um, you, and you want to invest in centrifuge as well. 
you have to do the KYC twice. Centrifuge uses Securitize, Goldfinch uses uh, a Web2 solution provider. What if there's a way for them to communicate with each other, right? That Centrifuge can, can be able to say, hey, you're a user, welcome to our platform. We check that you've already done KYC with uh, Goldfinch and we're able to pull that data from Goldfinch or some other third-party third solution provider and we're able to say, I'm going to save you 10 minutes to go to KYC. Immediately at the front end, show you the result. Uh, you know, either you're blocked or either you're not blocked and feel free to access our platform. So I think something similar is happening in real-world assets with the Circle Verity standard, which I'm personally very excited about. Um, so Verity is going to launch a proof of concept with one of the real-world asset protocols that we mentioned in the primer. Uh, I'm not sure if that news is public yet. So, oh, actually it is, it is public. So Circle is doing with uh, TrueFiDAO, uh, which they rebranded into ArchBlock and they will be using the Verity standard, which makes it easy for so existing Circle users that have done the KYB with Circle for a corporate account to use TrueFi platform to either be a borrower or to be a lender. Uh, I'm personally looking into that standard and we are on the track to do another POC as well and hopefully pushing that forefront um, and making it a lot easier for institutions to come to DeFi for real-world assets. Yeah, this is interesting because I think when a lot of people in the DeFi space think about protocol wars, I think they think more about, you know, the curve wars or the chi wars and it really like wars that are focusing on the allocation of liquidity and not necessarily wars related to, I guess, procedural processes of KYC, KYB or, or middleware adoption. So I, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I'm going to throw a bomb here. I personally think of wars as like the biggest psyop in, in crypto history. So, uh, <laughs> listeners feel free to argue with me on, uh, on, on Twitter. Uh, but going back to, I think the reason why crypto has that mentality or has that, um, affinity for narrative, particularly curve wars is because in crypto, many assets, they have similar asset return profile, very high volatility, high risk, high return. But when it comes to real world, there's a whole spectrum of assets, right? From treasury bills, which, which is supposed to be risk-free, all the way to the bottom to like emerging markets, junk bond, or even, even like high risk, high return asset classes. And so the protocol wars, so to speak, is like from a investor point of view, like I've got capital. These asset classes are not really mutually exclusive. Right, because one of the biggest um, tenets in modern finance is diversify your portfolio. It doesn't matter what return profile the asset is. There's always a place somewhere in someone else's portfolio that this asset is the optimal asset to add in their portfolio. Right, um, and so I think that's why in the asset specialist protocol war, we see less of the dynamic that we'll see when it comes to curve walls, when it comes to protocols, DeFi native protocols fighting for liquidity. Because very often, um, you know, investors that want low risk assets, uh, they are seeking treasury like yield and asset profile. 
they are probably not the investor profile that uh, Goldfinch or Centrifuge are looking for anyways. Um, and so it's pretty much like a customer segmentation uh, mental model that we're hitting at here. Yeah, very interesting. If there's two things we like on this podcast, it's hot takes and alpha. And Jack, I think that you've given both of those in the past uh, five minutes. So I appreciate that. Um, but let's let's continue on and let's focus a little bit about adoption. And, you know, we've heard the phrase software is eating the world. And I forget who, who said that quote. Um, but is the same thing happening with decentralized finance? Is decentralized finance going to eat traditional finance? And just how do we how do we focus on that adoption? This is a this is a good this is a good Jack section. I'll let him take it. Yeah, sure. So I am a sucker for history, and when I want to predict how the future looks, I want to look back at the past. The comparable history that I think DeFi should learn from is well, the most obvious one is how traditional finance evolved and the financial innovations and history and the cycle of bubbles. But on the other hand, because when it comes to real world asset, um, we're kind of assuming like it's blockchain, not crypto, right? It's more like, okay, we're using blockchain, streamline some of the financing workflow. And the intuitive comparable that jumped to me is enterprise software. And one of the largest innovation in enterprise software is the adoption of the cloud. Um, and the truth is, the cloud has been talking, you know, for the past decade or even 20 years, and it's still happening. There's still a debate about serverless architecture versus on-prem computing, both at the technical level and the financial cost and the economics of it. And so if we can apply that to and start to predict how DeFi will be traditional finance, then probably TriFi and DeFi will live together. They will coexist, similar to how in the real world right now in software, uh, cloud computing and on-prem uh, computing kind of coexist. And it's um, there's no clear cut. There's no like proponents of either side will say, hey, you know, cloud computing is the world. But then someone will show the economics and the cost of it and be like, well, in the long run, it's like it's not necessarily that cheap. Um, and so I think that's how we view about this. But we have specific predictions that we laid out in the primer. And the first one, very interestingly, is uh, what TJ proposed. Uh, DeFi eats long-tail assets first. Um, TJ, um, do you want to expand on that? Yeah, so this idea of um, running two systems in parallel, server and serverless architecture, um, is a great analogy for our rebirth assets, right? For traditional assets, for traditional managers, they're going to do the vast majority of their business through traditional avenues for the foreseeable future. It's what they know, it works, but they're going to start to dabble um, with acquiring assets via crypto protocols, with funding their own assets that currently sit on their books via crypto protocols, slowly but surely. So they're going to pay fees for two systems. But we really think where crypto will make the biggest dent out of the gate is in the long tail of assets. So this is the underserved sectors of the economy broadly, whether jurisdictionally, 
asset class, borrower type, etc. These groups are far more likely to benefit from plugging into crypto than uh, their traditional counterparts. They have far, far, far more to gain, right? And by virtue of that, we expect to see the progress in the short and medium term be disproportionately skewed towards that long tail. And TJ, you have this very nice uh, two times two matrix. Um, DeFi eats the long tail speculative uh, developing first. What does that matrix mean and what motivated you to make that matrix? When we think about what sort of the long tail looks like, it can be along two dimensions. So an X and a Y axis. Uh, one dimension is going to kind of be geographical, right? So we have the G7 world developed and then we have the rest of the world, which is emerging, right? And presumably for most asset classes, all else equal, if they are domiciled in an economy or in a jurisdiction like the US, they're going to be much safer than if they're domiciled in a jurisdiction like Uganda, right? So that's, let's say, our, our y-axis. On the x-axis, we also have, we're going from emerging asset classes to established asset classes, from risky asset classes to fairly safe asset classes. So on the x-axis on the far right, we'd have the safest asset classes, such as U.S. government securities. On the far left, in emerging asset classes, we'd have something like, you know, lending against a coffee farm in Indonesia. Right. And so in general, we're going to find ourselves um, with crypto making the greatest impact today, tomorrow and the next day at this combination, this X, Y combo of emerging jurisdiction, emerging asset class. And it's going to take much longer for crypto to attack and make a dent on the exact opposite X, Y, which is to say very established jurisdiction, very established low risk asset class. Yeah, I think something else y'all, y'all topped on touched on in, in terms of adoption is like it, unless DeFi is 10x better or more efficient than traditional finance, these institutions or I guess money managers are going to remain hesitant on that. Um, so I, I don't know. I was just wondering if you could if you could touch on that a, a little bit as well. Yeah. So we have a, we actually in the, in the last section in the dialectic, we have a cost curve. So happy to sort of mention in detail when we come to that section. Yeah, sure. Uh, but in short, basically the idea is switching costs. You know, similar to, you know, I'm using a iPhone and you want to convince me to use a Samsung. Well, I've got everything set up on my iPhone, on my iCloud, with photos, and iMessage. You know, is Samsung 10x better than what I'm using? If it's just marginally better, have a better camera, maybe 20% longer battery life, I'll be, I would hesitate. That's the intuition. Okay, let's let's talk about like the capital, you know, in the in the terms of demand for asset managers. Uh, that's something I'll touch on in the primer as well. Can you can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So this is part of the prediction that we're making. Whereas previously, TJ predicted that adoption, which is origination, like assets from long tail, is going to be originated first. That's more on the supply side, right? And now we look at the demand side. There are two types of demand that we predict that we'll predict will come from demand from asset managers, traditional finance institutions. So, you know, the European Investment Bank, which is the investment arm of the European Union, 2019, 2020-ish, issued the first digital bond on Ethereum public blockchain. 
KKR more recently tokenized one of the healthcare funds um, on Avalanche and using Securitize as like a permission layer on top of it. And so I think this shows that there is a class of traditional asset managers that are crypto curious and given the right opportunity, they will use blockchain rails to do investing and to supply capital or basically to become a demand. And I think this is really important because Real-world asset adoption is facing a valley of death moment right now. For the past few years, uh, you know, real-world asset protocols can rely on retail liquidity because of bull market. Now, in a bear market cycle, um, there has to be like core value proposition that these real-world assets adoption can deliver. And this is where institutional adoption is really key at this moment. And we think that if given the right approach, given the right sort of um, starting point, given the right investment opportunity, um, asset managers will allocate some capital and uh, use blockchain to assess real-world assets. And, you know, conversely, um, on the other hand, uh, there is demand from crypto-native organizations. So MakerDAO, which DJ uh, led the real-world asset team on, uh, it's mechanized known to be on the forefront of real world assets effort among other crypto native organizations. There's a lot of DAOs with huge treasuries that are de- denominated in ETH or stable coins. It's going to take a while, but I think it's inevitable that they will want to uh, manage the treasury and make some uncorrelated yield. And by uncorrelated, I mean like completely uncorrelated from like macro. Not even crypto macro, but like U.S. equities or like global macro, um, and the, and that will be like recession-proof sector, right? Such as energy, utilities, renewables, um, or sometimes defense. And you know, MakerDAO is already doing this. MakerDAO is working with Backed Finance to bring on board some tokenized U.S. treasuries and holding it on the balance sheet, um, and so. We think these two are the types of predictions we make on the demand side. Okay, yeah. So that's the demand side, but what about the supply side? We think about the supply side as actually much uh, more trivial, simpler to get done uh, in terms of RWA adoption on chain than the demand side. In general, when you think about an asset manager who originates assets or loans from the real world, you know they're generally going to be pretty open to securing creative new cheap solutions to finance their assets, right? In general, they'll have some senior secured facility from a bank, challenger bank, some sort of a fund. It can be fairly punitive, has to be renegotiated. There are fees on the front end, there are fees on the back end. If you come to them and you say, look, we got a creative solution, for you to quickly get funded cheaply, they're going to be open to that, right? They're going to be more open to that than someone who's on the other side investing in their assets, i.e. the buy side, which is what Jack just explained. And so we think what's going to happen here is when you think about the sort of traditional asset manager with a big book of assets, let's say uh, $50 billion in assets, you know, for the vast majority of those assets, they're going to use traditional financing avenues 
to finance those assets. So if you have corporate loans or mortgages, you're going to sell them into securitization execution. So 90% of your book is going to stay there for the near term. But there's 10%, which is you know your allocation to riskier assets that are harder to get. The, the, the deal flow is much more sort of status and relationship based. You don't really have access to the right assets, or at least not at the right scale. For that 10%, you're going to be a little bit more willing to experiment. So we think, you know, for that five billion um, or whatever it is of your fifty billion dollar balance sheet, <clears throat> you're going to look to DeFi. You're going to—it's going to take time for you to get comfortable, but you're going to look to the extent these protocols have like books of assets for you to pour through. You're at least going to consider it. So that's kind of the big asset managers on the supply side. Um, we also think that um, you know the more nimble specialist originators, what we all fondly know of as fintechs, are going to start to explore this world um, doggedly in 2023. We think it's going to be a key narrative. So these are groups that <clears throat> focus on particular asset classes. They're data-driven, but they're balance sheet constrained, right? And what that means is their access to traditional capital isn't that great because they're not quite mature enough to have access to big credit lines. On the other side, they don't want to keep all these assets on their books, right? This is what we'd call capital inefficiency. They want the ability to get those assets off the books so they can go originate more business, maybe with existing clients, maybe with new clients. Either way, they want great liquidity solutions to get these assets off their books so they can grow their business. So what we think is going to happen in 2023 with these fintechs is, you know, some of them are going to look to external protocols like your centrifuges, your goldfinches, et cetera, et cetera, to sell assets into. But the problem with that is <clears throat> these protocols, ultimately, they, they give up control. These fintechs, they give up control of the liquidity piece of the value pipeline that their users use. So we think that's something that we've termed the inside out execution will happen frequently in 2023. So these are fintechs that are incubating proprietary liquidity protocols that they can basically attach to their origination, underwriting, and servicing arms. So in the real world, it's kind of it's the DeFi mullet, right? In the real world, they are originating, underwriting, and servicing these loans, and then they have their sort of liquidity protocol on Ethereum that they sell these loans into, package them up, and then distribute them out to investors, sort of programmatically. So it's this sort of nice vertical integration that we expect to see, especially in the more nimble fintechs going into 2023. UK, what's your hottest prediction of this? Which, are, are there companies that can, that's going to do this? Yeah, I mean, I guess Justin did say that we want alpha and hot takes, so we'll give it a whirl. Um, yeah, so in the, in the primer, um, <clears throat> we laid out a prediction that the um, freight forwarder and sort of supply chain logistics mastermind um, at Flexport is going to spin out a proprietary protocol um, that basically enhances their financing arm and allows them to securitize their assets, which range from invoice financing to supply chain finance uh, to a variety of other sort of trade finance assets that their core user base would benefit from. And they're going to spin out this protocol such that they can um, you know, access sort of new planes of liquidity that they, that they don't currently. Well, that's okay. That's really interesting. <clears throat> um, so I guess you know we've we've talked about the demand and the supply side of this. Um, 
I also want to talk about like what, what types of assets do you see being originated and maybe like the motivation for TradFi to actually participate in these DeFi rails. I feel like we touched on that a little bit, but I just, I kind of want to dig in a little bit more on those two. Yeah. So we visualize different types of real world assets um, with a stack where with like a, with like a tier. So this is what we call in the primer, the pencil movement, which is a quote from the uh, Christopher Nola movie, um, a tenant, which in military terms is basically flank the wings. And I think that's what's happening. So from top to bottom, the top is high quality asset tier, such as treasury bills, money market funds. Uh, at the bottom is uh, emerging markets, consumer credit. And across this tier, we see different companies trying to tackle different assets. MakerDAO is looking to onboard treasury bills on its balance sheet. There are plenty of uh, companies and protocols trying to bring real estate or mortgages to the blockchain. Um, there are companies that do emerging market consumer credit and trade finance assets and bring them to the blockchain. And I think, and we think that real world asset adoption is going to be all of the above. It's going to happen. And it's going to be at the bottom up and top down and then squeeze in. And there's an interesting dynamic here, which in my opinion, uh, because at the top for the assets, treasury bills, um, you, it's very difficult to convince traditional finance institutions that already hold treasury bills to go to crypto rails. They have existing relationships, like 30 years, 40 years, you know, broker dealers, etc. And so bringing new money into the blockchain rails via the high quality asset is going to be hard. Conversely, if you look at the bottom, um, trade finance assets, emerging markets, consumer credit. Um, I think now we're facing this valley of death moment, right? Which is that it's also hard to bring institutional um, investors to the blockchain rail for, uh, with these type of assets because the universe of investors with this type of mandate or this type of appetite is already fairly small in the traditional finance world. And so simply from a sales, business development, and you know, again, from an enterprise software perspective, this is kind of enterprise arts, right? The sales cycle will be quite long and it's more difficult to bring on board institutional investors. And so probably the sweet spot will be somewhere in the middle about, you know, what is that sweet spot? Nobody knows. My personal bet is, um, what I'm building. So, uh, we're, so we're bringing renewable debt as an asset class and renewable debt is interesting because it's inflation proof. It's a sector that in recession investors rotate in. So it's a asset class that appeals to both crypto native investors and traditional finance institutional investor. But you know, I'm biased. I'm pumping my bags. That's one of the hot takes. I like that. I like that hot take. Um, and it looks like we've, we've got just a little bit of time left. So I want to make sure we, we touch on everything here. Um, what does the current landscape look like in terms of the RWA product space? And kind of what, where do you see it evolving, maybe like in the intermediate term? Sure. 
So as we touched on briefly, um, in our landscape, we broke down the various ecosystem participants into one of two species. <clears throat> one are infrastructuralists, uh, those laying the rails upon which asset specialists run and their assets run. And the other are the asset specialists. These are groups that are um, focusing their efforts around a particular asset type, a particular jurisdiction, uh, really more on the nitty-gritty liquidity side rather than the um, picks and shovel side. So, for example, um, in the middle, um, we have our oracles, our layer ones, our liquidity pools, our tokenization protocols, as well as our um, our regulatory, our, our reg tech. And then on the outside, what we really have is all of the various asset classes, such as trade finance, synthetics, real estate, physical infrastructure, revenue-based finance, et cetera, et cetera, um, as well as um, a particular gearing towards um, certain markets, um, like emerging markets. So <clears throat> the second part of your question, where does this go from here? Um, I mean, we expect to see um, you know, fairly... Um, dogged competition in kind of all of these categories. Um, I think for the first time yet, um, we sort of have confirmation now. There's enough people building, there's enough focus, there's enough money. Um, you know, we've onboarded enough TVL for people to recognize that this isn't a flash in the pan. And I think over the next six months, um, you'll see all kinds of builders come out of the woodwork. Uh, building in both of these categories. So we expect this to be you know, particularly fiery growth, um, especially given the fact that the sort of circular, reflexive, speculative games of DeFi have for, for, the, for the midterm um, you know, kind of soured a bit. People are looking elsewhere and they're saying, well, if this bear market continues, we don't know how long it'll go. If it does, though, how do we continue to bring yields into the system? And the answer is you want to lend on activities that create wealth. You want to lend against productive processes where there's some technological process at play that creates new wealth. And that means lending to real world businesses that are doing things like creating you know, widgets in a factory or transforming a piece of land into a photovoltaic farm, something that creates value for the world. So we expect this to be the very, very, very beginning of this secular trend. And we're kind of excited to see uh, what sort of ingenuity is on the cusp. Just to close on that, value accrues on the two ends. So it's another bold statement, hot take that I have, which is all of the middleware, and this is mentioned in a dialectic, the last section, the second to last section on the primer, where I think that the business model, the sort of envoy investors that if you're listening, here is your chance to uh, hear me out. And this is your chance to develop a investment thesis on the space which is that value accrues on the two ends on the spectrum, on the process of uh, real-world assets. Origination and uh, liquidity slash distribution and everything in the middle, the middleware, so it's organization, custody, uh, clearing slash settlement, all of that stack is going to be fungible. It's going to be a commodity. Um, and I do I do realize there are counter arguments for that, such as you know, regulatory capture, regulatory requirements, things like that. Uh, but it's a hot take, so debate with us. Maybe go on, maybe tweet us. <laughs> yeah. Um, and before we close out, uh, I've just got like a couple more questions for y'all. But uh, to the both of y'all, what, you know, for the readers of this primer, what is the one thing you want 
the readers to take away after they've read this primer? Teach, we'll start with you on this one. Yeah, I'm going to think I would say it's um, <clears throat> two sides of the same coin. Um, A, you know, to sort of get red-pilled on why it's important to tokenize and what tokenization is not, right? A lot of tokenization thus far has focused on representing assets um, and has largely ignored the ownership aspect. Um, I think on the other side is just at the same time that we've red-pilled readers on being real about what the benefits of tokenization are and what the shortcomings are, to recognize that in the long run, we do expect these these assets to come on chain and for it to be significantly more efficient and more transparent. And in the end, it will drive cheaper cost of capital for more borrowers, businesses around the world. If we haven't succeeded in driving towards that better product for cheaper, uh, then I would say we've largely failed as an industry. Um, but I expect, given the entrepreneurial spirit, um, the general general secular trends, that we will get there. It will just take some time. Yeah, Jack, what about you? Um, in short, in one statement is tokenization is hard and it takes many layers of nuances and hopefully reading the primer can inspire more people to think about what to build and when to build and build for whom. Um, yeah. Well, I want to thank y'all for coming on to the Polygon Alpha podcast. I thought this primer was a great read, a slow read for me because there's just so much content. It's it's very dense, but that's that's good in DeFi. We need more. We need more primers like this. And I thought the name was also really great. An unreal primer on real world assets. Um, but before we sign off here, uh, where can people go to find out more about the two of you and where can they find this primer other than the show notes, which they will be in the show notes. You can find my rants and ramblings on my Twitter, uh, at Lempheter, L E M P H E T E R. Um, if you're someone who likes a little bit more long form and more substance, more rigor, perhaps, you can find my um, slightly more coherent ramblings on the Maker Forum. Um, the Unreal Primer is featured on both my Twitter as well as Jack's. I think I even posted in the Maker Forum. Um, and really, I think anyone you hit up in uh, Real World Asset Twitter uh, should have a link to it, including us. And listeners can find my can find me on Twitter laughing as a baby techno philosopher king. Uh, my Twitter handle is. Uh, well, if you search jackchong.eth, you will be able to find me. Um, and happy to uh, discuss and argue or talk about the hot takes that's covered in today's podcast. Just tweet at us. You heard it here first, everyone. Tweet at these people and give them your hot takes. Um, yeah, thanks to everyone for listening and watching. Uh, subscribe on YouTube and Substack and Spotify and Apple. Subscribe to all of them. Why not? And a special thanks again to Tej and Jack uh, for coming on the show. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks, everyone.